Hello and welcome to Liberal Lockdown. I'm Dale Roberts. And I'm Adam Kirby. Throughout this pandemic, we've listened to all kinds of experts with practical tips, local news and fascinating points of view. All about how this unprecedented situation has affected our lives and our community here in Woking in so many different ways. Today we're focusing on the issue at the heart of it all, healthcare itself. We've all been washing our hands, wearing our masks and socially distancing for months. We've all heard the fantastic news that vaccines are now on their way at some point in 2021. But do we know the inside story from our local NHS frontline? Do we know what inspires everyday people to choose a healthcare career and to put themselves on that front line? And what can we learn for a better world after COVID? We have some of the answers and plenty more questions for you to think about coming right up. Today's guest is a qualified nurse, local NHS professional and chair of the General Practice Nurse Forum for the Royal College of Nursing. Alongside that hard-working career, she also conducts health research for the Liberal Democrats nationally. While here in Woking, she is also standing for the Liberal Democrats as a candidate for the Borough Council in Mount Hermon. Welcome to Liberal Lockdown, Ellen Nicholson. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Hi, Ellen. First of all, could you tell us a little more about your background, having heard all of that biography? Yeah, I know it goes on a bit, doesn't it? Sorry. So that's all right. No. Um, so I started my career as a registered nurse in Wiltshire. I grew up in South Wales um, and I've moved around quite a lot as well. I've lived in Hong Kong. I've lived in Germany as well as living in Surrey in the southwest of England. I have never worked further north than um, North London. So if you ask me about anything north of North London, I'm really not your person. But, you know, south of the river, I can manage that. Um, I have three children who are mostly adults now, um, a husband and a dog as well. And I've been here in Surrey for the last few years. And I've stood as a borough councillor um, previously and been unsuccessful. And I've stood as a parliamentary candidate as well. Wow. And have you always worked in healthcare as well? And what, what led you to that profession alongside of all those accomplishments? Um, I mentioned that I lived in Hong Kong. I lived in Hong Kong as a teenager and finished my school in Hong Kong. At the same time I was there, there were um, refugee camps for the Vietnamese refugees. And my mother took me to visit them. And I think that probably had an influence, you know, seeing the care that was given in those camps and the um, the passion people had for social justice and helping other people probably influenced me because I became a nurse not long after I left school. It's really interesting. It sounds like um, there's some inspiration there in in that moment. What what led you, and, and was it that that led you to be more involved in the policy side of healthcare? Is it a, is it a big motivator? Is it a sort of political and social motivation? I think there's two things. Um, I think you're right. Those type of experiences, um, seeing people in need and looking after people in need, it's a real privilege, but it's also um, something that does motivate you to actually want to do the best for people. But also healthcare by its nature is political. Um, there are decisions made in government. There are decisions made in local government. And um, I think the, you want to um, influence as well. So it, it, as I say, it's by its nature political with a small p. 
it's almost like everything's political, isn't it? I mean, it, it's we we tend to we t- we sometimes pass judgment on things and so are we, it's just being political. But actually, there's a political dimension to most things. Quite right. There's always there's always um, different scenarios behind um, situations, and actually, sometimes you just have to unpick them to work out what's actually going on, don't you? Mm. So yeah. I understand that you've helped work on the front line here in Woking as well, supporting patients with COVID. Can you tell us a bit about that experience as well? So when COVID first hit here in the UK, I was working for Central Surrey Health in Woking. Um, it was it was a short job that I was actually doing there. Um, and I was involved in some of the organisation setting up some of... Um, the organisation for Headley Court, which is going to be a kind of COVID rehabilitation unit, but also looking at how people were going to be redeployed within the healthcare systems in um, Woking and across Surrey, really. And obviously, I was talking to a number of doctors, nurses, um, about the anxieties people had at that time um, about working with COVID patients. You've got to remember, you know, a few months back, we didn't really know what we were going to be dealing with. And um, people were understandably worried. That makes sense. And <clears throat> still on COVID, have you noticed the benefits of any prevention measures locally? I mean, as a resident, um, as well as a healthcare professional, how do you think the test, track and trace, um, trace system is working and working? I don't have any personal knowledge of how a test, track and trace is working in Woking. Mm. Um, nationally, um, it has been a centralised approach which possibly hasn't worked as well as the government would have liked. Um, we've all seen problems with the you know, test and trace system, yes. people getting appointments or not getting appointments and swabs being sent out or not being sent out and results being processed. Having said that, locally within Surrey, when you look um, kind of across the nation, actually working area isn't doing too badly. Um, there are apps that you can actually put your postcode into and track how many people have actually got COVID in your local area and how many people have actually um, died, unfortunately, from COVID. And across the country, Woking doesn't seem to be too bad. Um, hopefully it'll stay like that. Yeah, definitely. It's encouraging, isn't it? And it, uh, this is almost impossible to ask. If you can just for a moment think before COVID, um, it seems... It seems hard to imagine a pre-COVID period, uh, but before COVID hit, there were plans to reform walking centres um, that may have caused closures, potentially even in Woking at the walking centre in Mount Hermon. What what was your take on that? Where are we on that? So I'm a fan of walking centres. I've worked in a walking centre, not here in Woking, but I worked in one in Yeovil for a number of years and have seen the benefit of people being able to access local healthcare services. Um, and I know that um, residents generally like using walk-in centres. Um, obviously with the Woking Walk-in Centre, COVID came along and the plans were put on pause a little bit. But I, there was a meeting in June um, where Northwest Surrey um, Clinical Commissioning Group um, talked about the future of Woking Walk-in Centre and they have advised that we possibly need to think about um, how we organise our services differently. So I think it's in pause at the moment um, and we're not quite sure what's going to happen in the future. There are plans um, nationally to bring more 
um, testing, diagnostic testing, so people can, you know, find out if they have their blood test or they have their scan right. um, to local levels. And it may well be that actually the walk-in centre in Woking evolves into something more like that. But I don't think anybody knows at the moment, and we won't probably do anything about it until after COVID has died down. Hmm. And I understand that those potential closures were designed before COVID as part of a programme to create what were termed GP-led urgent treatment centres across Surrey. So aside from that being a different name, what would that have meant actually in practical terms? So I think that's what we're probably going to see um, in the future post-COVID. So when the health service was um, reorganised, we're always reorganising the health service, you know, as soon as we've reorganised one bit, then we reorganise the next bit. Isn't a GP-led centre sort of like a doctor's surgery sorry i mean maybe that sounds like the same thing to me am i wrong um yes and no okay. so we have something that's emerging um at the moment we have clinical commissioning groups um our clin this is going to get technical our clinical commissioning groups are changing into yeah. inter integrated care systems so basically you're trying to bring general practice and social care together to kind of help your community at a local level so you're aiming for things called primary care networks, which are going to be groups of about 30 to 50,000 patients or people um, who are all registered with different GP surgeries working together in one area. So these primary care networks are going to hold the contract or are likely to hold the contract for your out of hours kind of um, GP led or general practice led urgent care centers. So that's how the future is evolving. That's what's going to happen in the future, but or it is evolving at the moment. I what, hope that's not too technical. What sort of time scale? I mean, it sounds it sounds like it's in its infancy. It is in its infancy. So primary care networks are already here. Um, you can look them up online, actually, and you'll see the ones for the kind of Woking area. However, they're in different stages of maturity around the country. Um, they were all supposed to be at a mature level by now, but we've had COVID for the last few months, right. so everything's slightly delayed. Um, but this is this is going to be the future kind of, of healthcare. So look out for primary care networks and how they evolve. Have I confused you? No. I I think that's um, I think that was brilliant actually because it gave a real. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty about something like that, of course, yeah. at this stage. But it, I think it was very clear in terms of what that might look like, given... No, it's it perfect. could be really, really good. I mean, the it idea is... Great, it, actually. it sounds like, yeah, you know, yeah. you kind of got less of a barrier between a normal, what we think, feel like is a normal doctor's appointment and then, oh, a hospital. And there's this sort of big gap between the two things, isn't there? It sounds like it yeah. might start to bridge that a bit. So it, it could be positive and it's pulling in social care as well because councils don't necessarily work that well together with healthcare, and we never have because everybody has their own little silo, don't they? But actually, this is hopefully, you know, bridging the gap and you've got people from council and people from healthcare together. In theory, in theory. And actually, Tony Bennett, um, who runs uh, Woking Mind, he was saying very similar things, actually, about the idea that it should be working all together. So, again, mental health being really important. To, yeah. And it makes sense as well, because we work in silos and actually we're duplicating things in different parts of the system. So, actually, why do you want to duplicate things when you can do something better together? It's difficult to get right, though, isn't it? 
you're never you going know, to get these it right. Are, these are <laughs> large scale systems with lots of complicated interfaces involving mm -hmm. lots of different areas of expertise, I guess. And everybody, every, I don't know about your areas of work, but in my area of work, everybody thinks they're right. So, yes. Yeah. So, you know, well, you have that kind of, this right, is my yeah. area. Welcome to politics as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, then yeah no, it is. Doctors so, feel they're right. That, you know, yeah, and you've got, to, you've got to deal with all the egos as well, haven't you? And, you know, protectionism and, yeah. Well, I suppose it's small p politics. Like people, it's again like a version of everyone thinks that politics isn't, but politics, small p politics, just the, you know, the egos of the people involved in the interest groups. Right. That's politics, isn't it? Anyway. One of the debates that's been raised by Test, Track and Trace are the differences between doing it centrally or doing it locally. Do you see any benefits over one or the other? Um, so I would say that probably a local approach is actually better. A local approach has the um, ability to respond quickly to small areas of kind of COVID um, infections, whereas nationally you may not have that full picture. We've seen with um, the NHS and Public Health England that it takes a little bit of time for the results um, of COVID and who's infected with COVID to get back to them to be counted on the numbers. Um, so you don't always have that full picture at national level when you would like it. Whereas locally, um, because you're very much part of that local area and that local community, it's much easier to respond quickly because you know your local area. And um, so I do think a local approach is um, probably a safer approach for well, kind of you can have some very clever system that combines data and then sends it back to a local area. But I don't suppose you try and create something like that. It's going to take a little bit of time for it to pass each stage and then end up where it started, isn't it? It is. And we've had trouble, haven't we? Um, well, we've had problems with our kind of track and trace system in the UK. It's yeah. It's been on and off. So. It's a really difficult question, isn't it? I mean, ideally, you know, you would have a kind of national program that actually monitors everything and it's it's triaged down to your local level, but it hasn't necessarily worked as well as we would like it to. Um, I think the pilot that's going on in Liverpool at the moment is probably one that people are watching to see how mm. that, that works. Putting track and trace to one side for a second, I'm, I'm a bit of interest in the technology side of this. What, what do you think about the role of technology in, in healthcare? More generally, remote GP appointments, for example, over the phone, apps like Livy. I think it's brilliant. I think it revolutionises the way that we deliver healthcare. It makes it more accessible for people. And we've already had um, a lot of people kind of really appreciating um, the speed up of the, the healthcare. I mean, everybody knows that the NHS has got lots of different IT systems that don't always talk to each other. And we're always investing in IT. And it hasn't always um, worked as well as we would like it to. But COVID has actually forced us to step up and use this type of technology now. Um, so for example, people who are working can get, you know, a quick 10 minute um, telephone call or face to face Zoom meeting with their GP. And it's not just GP. It's nurses who are doing these appointments, um, physiotherapists, lots and lots of healthcare professionals. Um, and they, they've had that appointment and it hasn't interrupted their day. They haven't had to leave their office, um, you know, to kind of wait in a waiting room for their appointment. On the other side, however, some um, people have found it more restrictive. So some of our 
older population have found it more restrictive because they're less able to use the technology mm. and also people who ask how does that work when they when they um people are shielding and they can't go out but they don't know how to use a virtual appointment i'm sure some elderly people find, are fine with it but um you have to you have to make sure you have lists of people who are yeah. You, you generate within a general practice, you will generally know who your vulnerable people are, but it's not just elderly people, it's people with learning disabilities as well. Um, we don't want to be missing that part of the population as Absolutely. well. So, so it, it, it's a double edged sword, really. I think it's a really good thing, but it cannot be used as a blanket approach. You still have to have your face to face appointments, and the face to face appointments have been going on, you know, throughout COVID. There's been um, talk on the news about general practice being closed, um, but that's that's not true. So, you know, from March onwards, they've been seeing millions of people. Here's an interesting fact for you. Normally we see in general practice around about 5 million patients a week across England. And it did slip down at the beginning of the COVID um, epidemic, but actually it's back to around about 5 million a week. And we really? see 300, 300 million people wow. kind of per year. So it's huge right. numbers we're talking. I mean, it's not 300 million different people because there aren't that many people, but that number of different- 300 million consultations. Yeah, no. that's amazing. I, I actually that really reminds me of a conversation I've had with um, local teachers and people in local schools in, in Horsel actually around lockdown because there was a misconception that schools were totally closed they might have been closed to a lot of people but of course the children are key workers still went to school throughout so um, I think you know it, again it's it's this it's misconceptions people have had about lockdown and and even when it has by necessity has been quite strict some of these things have had to stay open haven't they yeah absolutely they've had to stay open if your if your children of key workers didn't go to school then obviously you have a parent who has to stay home and look after them and you've taken somebody out of the workforce so yeah and that would have that been had, the yeah. nhs of course that has implications yeah, yeah. exactly Helen, we've on the podcast already we've spoken to a number of local people and some guests in this series about the importance of supporting mental health as well as physical health particularly during lockdown in your role, do you have anything to add on the sort of balance of physical and mental health? So that's a really good question. Thank you for that one. Um, so I'm a member, as you said at the beginning of the Royal College of Nursing, um, we had a motion at our kind of annual conference last year that we would recognise mental health as having parity of esteem with physical health. So they're both given the same amount of weight. Um, and as a member of the Liberal Democrats, we have a same motion or similar motion at um, one of our conferences that, again, it has the same parity of esteem. Um, often we've seen that mental health has been um, has been a lesser a lesser kind of um, part of healthcare, or has seen to be a lesser part of healthcare. But actually, it's just as important our kind of mental well-being as our physical well-being. And with COVID. Um, it's it's become much more apparent that, you know, people have been in very, very difficult situations. People have lost jobs. They're being made redundant. They're worried about their health and well-being. Um, and it's brought kind of, you know, our mental health very much to the fore and how we manage our mental health. Um, there's some really good projects out there. Mind is one that springs to mind. And I know you've had um, local people talking about mental health mm -hmm. on your podcast previously yeah, who have highlighted that. They were really interesting to speak to, actually, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it basically is essential that we have good mental health as much as we do physical health. And it's it's everybody's got different strategies to cope with it. You know, whether you talk to people, whether you 
um, practice mindfulness, whether you go for a walk along the river, it's it's what works for that person. But I think if anybody does find they're struggling with their mental health, they really, the thing I would say is they really do need to speak to somebody. The Samaritans run a 24 hour kind of um, helpline for anybody who's struggling, but there's always somebody who will listen. And even the lower level things as well, when we spoke to Mind, they emphasised, uh, their Tony Bennett locally emphasised that absolutely, if you need to speak to Samaritans, they're always there for you. But on the other hand, if you have something that you might just dismiss because you feel you can manage it, but it is making your life unpleasant, you should tackle it because like any issue of health. Yeah, no, should... absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soon, really... soon, sooner the better with mental yeah. health as with physical health. I think sometimes though it's it's people recognizing it isn't it mm. sometimes we I mean I don't know about you but um you know sometimes it's difficult to recognize in yourself that actually you're reaching a point where you need to talk to somebody about it so I think it's maybe being a little bit aware of yourself as well um and the situation you're in and and reaching out to people isn't it I mean we we all think we can cope don't we and you know you kind of soldier on but actually um, it's a real sign of strength, actually, to reach out to people and talk about the problems and acknowledge the things that you might need to need to talk about. That's a lovely way of putting it, actually. Yeah. Um, well, on a related point as well, and on the physical side, uh, again, I just we actually wanted to see if we can offer some practical guidance on that sort of things for those who listen to the podcast. So, could you just quickly reiterate the medical advice right now on avoiding catching COVID too? Um, so we have had a big, big, big push for people to remember to wash their hands. I'm sure you've seen it, you know, um, washing <laughs> washing your hands is one of the most important things. Um, people don't wash their hands enough. We don't want people to become obsessive, but we do want them to have clean hands. Um, so washing your hands, obviously social distancing, keeping that distance from people. Um, at the moment, we're back into lockdown, aren't we? So obviously you have to have that distance from people. Um we recommending as well that you wear your face masks when you're out in your supermarkets. Um, you have to do that, don't you? Because it it's not so much that you're not going to catch it yourself when you're in the supermarket. It's actually you're not putting anybody else at risk if you have COVID and you don't know about it. Um, we know that there are people who are um, what we call asymptomatic, so they don't have any symptoms of COVID, but they may well have the infection. Um so it, it's just minimizing those risks really so it's simple things that people just need to remember to do really just to um, keep themselves healthy um, obviously with our schools back um, colleges back at um, back at school at the moment um, I think when your children come in it's probably a good idea for them to wash their hands um, before they start kind of hugging their mum or dad um, and siblings as well so it's just being being sensible being cautious and being careful they all sound sort of really doable don't they if we if we get into those sort of new habits yeah and i think you have to remember i mean covid is with us at the moment but covid like any other illness or virus is probably not going to be with us forever and ever and ever we will come through this um it's just a question of you know when when it's going to kind of start to die down will the vaccine come first because there's been a lot of talk about the vaccine this week it's really exciting that there's um, a vaccine, but I would say now. <laughs> don't get too excited yeah. just yet. <laughs> <laughs> so we we are in the NHS. We're, we're making plans to actually roll out mass vaccination across the whole of the United Kingdom, which is which is 
a challenge, to say the least. Yeah. Um, but you have to remember as well that the vaccines, there's lots of different vaccines being developed at the moment. Um, and the early results look really, really encouraging from a few. But what we don't know is the long term. Um, we don't know what kind of side effects they might have. We don't know how long they might last for. So there's still a way to go. So although it's really encouraging news about the vaccine, just just take a pause and think, OK, we're not quite there yet. So in the interim, though, Ellen, for now, if somebody does develop symptoms, what should they be doing if they think they have COVID? Thanks for asking that. So I'm just going to go back a step there. So many people will know the main symptoms of COVID, but I'm just going to state them again, just so people do know. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. So we're looking for people who have a high temperature. So they might feel a little bit hot to touch. Um on their chest or their back. They might have a new continuous cough. Um, that's usually when they're coughing for more than an hour, you know, two or three episodes, four episodes maybe in the you know 24 hours. Um, and if you usually have a cough, because some people do actually normally have a cough, it might be worse than normal. And what's come out as we've got more used to COVID is as well, you might have a loss of, or a change in your sense of smell or taste um, that is quite a common symptom for many people who have COVID. So if you have coronavirus, a lot of people do actually have at least one of those symptoms. And what we want you to do is if you do have any of those symptoms or you're a bit concerned, is to get yourself to have a test as soon as possible. Um, and anyone you live with should stay at home and not have visitors until you have your test result. Um, so only leave home to get your test. And obviously, if you're going to get a test, you to test to check, you can go onto the government website and check there. And you use the NHS 111 online coronavirus service if you're worried about your symptoms or you're not sure what to do. Um, I would say as well, anybody who's elderly or kind of young, young children and babies, if you're at all concerned about them, we'd want you to call 111 as well, because they're slightly more vulnerable categories. Um, so we're always more cautious with with those kind of, um, uh, those types children, of people. Apparently, from my reading of it and mostly the media, uh, apparently young children are very unlikely to have symptoms. But are they also potentially, if they do get them, more vulnerable then? No, no, not necessarily from coronavirus, but we are always cautious. It could be something with, else, couldn't it? Yeah, it could be something yeah. else. You know, children are kind of susceptible to have ear infections, you know, chest infections and all those types of things. And because they're, they're obviously quite vulnerable, we, we tend mm. to be more cautious with kind of babies, young children. And as I said, kind of the elderly who are slightly more vulnerable or anybody really who's in a vulnerable category. There's two, there's two really important points that came across there, Alan. One was... If you suspect you have symptoms, get a test and then isolate whilst you get the test, including your household. And then the second thing, if you fall into that vulnerable category, check. I think I think those two things perhaps have, have not always been as, as clear as they might have been. Yeah, absolutely. I think if people are concerned, I mean, that's why we have the NHS 111 service there, isn't it, really? Um, that people can actually... Um, talk to them and if they're at all concerned about their health yeah um, you know I mean if anybody is concerned they do need to talk to somebody they shouldn't just um, you know sit at home and worry I think really right get on the phone yeah so, one, 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 it's what it's there for 
It is, absolutely. And what we say in England as well, you need to get your test done within the first eight days of having symptoms. So on kind of those first days one to seven, you can get tested on a site. So you have to make an appointment, obviously, or at home if you're ordering a home test kit. Or on day eight, you go to a test site if it's too late to order a home test kit. So right. it's it's making sure that you actually get on to the kind of information that you need once you start thinking, actually, I'm not very well. I've got symptoms and I think it's coronavirus. And the rest of your household stays at home and doesn't go out until you actually have the results. And it may be, be you have a negative test um, because obviously it's there isn't just coronavirus around at the moment. There are all the other um, illnesses that we've had, you know, kind of the influenza. Um, people do get temperatures and get infections still. So it, you have to be aware that it might not be coronavirus. It might be something else. That's great advice. Um, we also wanted to talk to you about non-COVID uh, related health issues. Uh, that's a it's a it's a big issue because of COVID at the moment. The number of NHS patients admitted for routine operations fell by something like 80% over the past few months. What would you say to reassure those that are perhaps worried, concerned about visiting their GP or, you know, just staying away, they're waiting until COVID is over? Um, so if anybody's worried about their health and they're not obviously contacting 111, um, I would say that they actually do need to go to their general practice um, if they're at all concerned. If they have a long-term condition um, such as diabetes or asthma or, or they have high blood pressure, um, they will be seen by their practice anyway. They might be seen by an um, online digital consultation at the moment. They might not necessarily go into the surgery, but they will be taken care of. Um, general practice, as I said earlier, has stayed open all throughout COVID and it's still open now. It might be slightly different the way you access it, but it's still there and it's still open. And the health professionals, the doctors, the nurses are still there um, looking after the patients. Um, so it, a lot of people have been concerned, though, and haven't necessarily wanted to contact their GP surgery, partly because they think they might be overwhelmed with lots of COVID patients and partly um, because they're worried about going into an environment where they think that COVID might be. If people have health concerns, they do need to contact somebody. I think that's the again another really clear message. Don't that you know there are ways you can access um, online advice or or using one one one, and and don't be overwhelmed by the experience. Speak to somebody, take advice. It will it may be different, but it is there and available to you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as I said, all your all your healthcare professionals, they're still there. They're still working. They're still doing the job that they were doing pre-COVID. They'll still be there post-COVID, too. But actually, you know, we do want to see the patients as well. I'm finding all this very reassuring. Right. Now, Ellen, obviously, there's political implications for all of this. And I suppose we'd like to get onto that. Um, and there is a clear consensus about what should be done to prevent COVID by most of the experts. Uh, but it hasn't stopped some people coming up with other ideas. Uh, one example is what's been termed this Great Barrington Declaration. I think it recommends that we should instead return to more like normal life, allow the virus to move through the younger, healthier population and build up immunity there, apparently, but only shielding the vulnerable. Now, is that a serious alternative? Does it have any magic medical logic or should we see it as just sort of very optimistic fake news? So 
I think you have to understand in any profession and particularly in health, there are going to be people who have varying opinions um, and, you know, they they are they do have some validity as well. Um, I think one of the difficulties with allowing COVID to spread through the general population would be that actually as more people became infected and as more people um, sought to use the NHS, what you would find is your actual key workers, your healthcare workers, your school workers, your lorry drivers, um, delivery drivers for supermarkets became infected and were unable to work. And once that happens, then you start to lose some of your infrastructure around you. So deliveries to supermarkets, for example. And there's been a lot of talk as well about kind of, you know, overburdening your health service. If a lot of your healthcare workers are actually off sick, who's going to be looking after people as they become sick? So it's a really difficult question. And I do understand why people would like that to happen, because obviously, if you let it spread through the population, I think the logic there would be, or they think that, you know, the quicker we'd be through it and out the other side of it. Um, but it has it has implications on how our society manages as well. That's really interesting. I suppose, like anything in science, there's uncertainty, but it reminds a bit of that climate science discussion where you've got two sides of the argument it doesn't mean that they're both equally valid or that there's it's, not. It's a good point, isn't it? And so um, we knew, for example, that we uh, that in the we knew there was a link between uh, smoking and cancer, for example, in the 30s. But it took decades of, of disputed research and, and scientific opinion to arrive at a position where cigarettes are taxed at 500% and, and, and there's a health warning on every packet and it's banned indoors, it, that big change. And so this feels to me like a dangerous position to be in because we, we hold up all of these, don't we? Say, well, you know, the, the science, it's, it's backed by scientists and therefore it's, it's, it's true. And, and we forget that actually scientists, like everybody else, they're human, they're political, they have opinions, have strong views it it drives different opinions just like any other it's not but it's you not do have to listen to the consensus because that's the best you have what do you think helen you're the you're the healthcare uh, professional <laughs> um we all have our unconscious bias as well don't we yes. so we lean a certain way so i think we have to take that into account as well um i think when you look at, you know, we have we have experts who are there for a reason. Um, so we have SAGE, don't we, who are advising the government, but we also have independent SAGE um, because they have a slightly different point of view. And I think it, it's working out what is the best. Everybody wants the best for the population. And I think we have to remember that. Yeah. It's just how they get to it or how they think they're going to get to it may vary. Um yeah, and as you say, we're never going to have 100% exactly the same opinion. There are always going to be differences of opinion and how we how we manage different things. I suppose one uh, unconscious bias that maybe we all have sometimes is optimism. And maybe we need to be cautious of what we want to happen, what we want to be true, and, and what, what actually is true, and what we do need to do still to be careful, right? Um, yeah, I think to a certain extent that might be true, actually, isn't it? Because I want it to be true doesn't necessarily mean it is true. <laughs> What, what are the political implications of coronavirus? What, what questions does it open up as, to us as individuals, to, to the economy? It, to me, this is, this is a, perhaps a very long discussion, but for society in general, what, what does this mean moving forward? 
It's a really big area, isn't it? It is. Um, so there are definitely political implications of coronavirus um, within the country and how we compare to other countries, how we compare to Europe. Um, just today, our um, death rate has just gone over 50,000 that we know of mm. who have died from coronavirus, which is the highest within Europe. Um, so when you start comparing um, with other countries, and it might not stay like that, other countries might change as well. Um, it definitely has political implications because when you hear those figures, um, the government will be, um, I suppose, not judged is not the word I'm looking for, but they will be. Um, opinions it, will form, won't opi they? Exactly. Opinions will form um, about how they are dealing with it. Um, I think when you look at test and trace and some of the difficulties we've had with test and trace as well, again, opinions will form. And it's natural to look at other countries and say, well, actually, they've done this in this country. Why, why are we not doing it here? Why is it working there? Why is it not working here? And that's that's human nature, isn't it? I think it's, um, it's, yeah. it's a feature of, the, of a pandemic, isn't it? And so on the one hand, I mean, they're not unprecedented, but they happen infrequently, at least. But on the other hand, they're everywhere. And so we can make and we naturally will make comparisons. Absolutely. And thank goodness pandemics don't happen that often. Yes. Um, yeah, you don't have much fact days, but that's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that is a really good thing. Yeah. I mean, I think from, from the healthcare professional, we've known that one has going to be coming for a while. Um, there's been talk about possible pandemics for certainly, I can remember the last... Well, there was that film, Contagion, which was made, when was it, 2011 or so, nearly 10 mm -hmm. years ago. And, and that was a commonly, it was after SARS, that was a commonly held most public theory that this would sort of happen at some point we forget yeah, yeah. and exactly. Cygnus of course Project Cygnus just yeah, they, just just before they do happen and you think back as well you know as you said with SARS I can remember we had um, a lot of planning for SARS back in 2011 I think it was um, and we were talking about pandemics and how we would manage and fortunately it was a much smaller smaller version than what we have now um, I think as well, from the perspective of how it is impacting on the country, um, it's really difficult for people, isn't it? There's been a lot of people, as I said earlier, who have lost lost jobs or they've been furloughed. Um, we're all having to adapt and live in a different way. And it's had an impact on how we live. Um, the people who have lost their jobs might well be struggling financially um, and, you know, our kind of town centres are really, really struggling, aren't they? Shops are shutting, opening, shutting, opening. Same for the pubs, really, and the restaurants and the entertainment industry. Um, and the impacts on mental health and, of course, connected to physical health that that has. And, of course, poverty has impacts on people's health, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah absolutely. What kind of food people can, people can afford or find easy and and all kind of other things. And, and, and then, yeah, I mean... There's so many ways it's going to sort of loop back and have second and third order effects on people's lives, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the positives, if you can say it's a positive, is because oh, the they that, exist as well. We can't all be. Yeah, doing. they do. They yeah, do. Yeah. People have really, really pulled together within communities and they've supported one another. You've seen people out, kind of, you know, getting shopping for neighbours who have been vulnerable and shielding. You've seen people kind of delivering prescriptions. People have really stepped up to help one another and actually maybe that's what we had lost before this happened part of that kind of feeling of being part of a community and I, I really hope that side of it actually stays afterwards that people can kind of remain connected um, in a way that we possibly weren't before it's interesting it has created that and there may be 
long-term positive impacts. And, and so I, I'm involved in one of those groups, actually, Alan. There's 200 volunteers in St. John's, Napier and Brookwood that, um, that are running errands. They're picking up shopping and, and uh, medication for their, for their neighbours. And it's, it's, um, it's just astonishing. It's hundreds and hundreds of, of errands that people are running for their neighbours. And helping out their community there we we um, some time ago we created this document called a thousand acts of kindness we sort of detailed what what they've been doing it's it's an amazing opportunity for communities isn't it it is absolutely and you know it's been it's been fascinating and it's been really really encouraging it reminds you how good human nature actually is um, I think we always get kind of bogged down a little bit don't we by newspapers and stories that are slightly negative but actually there's some really really good things out there as well to it's celebrate to remind yourself of that because we live in a society where awful, awful things happen but every time every time they do up rushes you know a crowd of people to help you out uh, whether that's getting your shopping or if you you need an ambulance and i suppose the nhs thing is an example of that as well yeah, um, that, we, we've, we've got that, that community group in halls or similar thing as well um, yeah, of course halls all prepared we, 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 we all around working um go on Dale. yeah there are lots of groups yeah. i'm I'm, um, I use this story often, you know, Mr. Rogers, who's the American children's television entertainer, he's, he's a lovely, wholesome guy. And um, he talks about whenever he saw a crisis on the news as a child, his mum would say to him, look for the helpers. Yeah, I think that's a really good thing, isn't it? Well, we won't quite finish on that positive note because we also want to finish on your political views as a candidate as well, Ellen, because that's the one part of your intro that we haven't haven't really touched on yet. So how do you feel you'd be able to translate all of these really amazing perspectives into being a candidate for Working Borough Council as well? Um, so that's a really good question, isn't it? And it's a really great I'm opportunity. putting you on the spot, but, 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 but I mean, or, or put it this way, how has it inspired you to, to take that step? Um, so it, it all comes from all of the story I've been telling you so far, you know, kind of the social justice and the wanting to help communities and, to, you know, use your healthcare knowledge, actually. So for me as a candidate for Working Borough Council, I would want to use my care skills to kind of, you know, help the health expertise and looking at solutions to help the local community, maybe with the the primary care networks I was talking about and helping people to understand those and maybe being a bridge between social care and kind of health care so people can understand it a bit better because we don't always explain it as well as we'd like to. Um, I'd really like to kind of, you know, um, be on the council to help with the infrastructure and health services and building up around that as well and making it kind of you know competent um, rather than slightly crumbling as we see sometimes and I think the one thing we haven't talked about so far that I would like to focus on is um, kind of the climate change and you know how serious that is actually for our world we might talk about kind of the covid pandemic at the moment but actually coming hard on its heels probably is a more scary thing which is climate change we so have looking- brexit in between but yeah no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but you're quite right i mean no. climate change is going to affect everyone well wherever you draw your borders right so i, I think i would agree with you on that point yeah, and it's it's how we how we engage with local people and change our communities to make them more kind of carbon neutral, reducing our kind of CO2 emissions um, and how we're going to adapt our communities. So maybe some of that community spirit we've seen within COVID, um, we can move into using for kind of tackling climate change and making our houses just more insulated. They're a bit drafty sometimes, aren't they? 
And you mentioned the Brexit word, didn't you? I think, I think you know, uh, January. We we'll do yeah. that for another episode. Yeah, yeah let's do that <laughs> another one. <laughs> well, um, before we get distracted by that very big question, um, it's probably the note to end on. Thank you, Ellen, for joining us. Thank you for all the fantastic work you and your team do for us. And for the whole of the podcast team, um, we wish you well. Be safe. Yeah, thank you, Alan, and very best of luck. And can I just say thank you to all of you for this wonderful podcast and thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Alan. There's so much that we could highlight from that conversation right there. But for me, I really enjoyed hearing Ellen's story and her motivation for her career. Yeah, it's easy to talk about the NHS as an organisation, maybe less common to see it as a group of people who train as professionals, live in our community with a school and go off to work every day or night. That's right. Ellen was really insightful on the organisational aspect too. The points she made about the centralised track and trace system versus a more localised alternative had some really broad implications for the way to think about delivering all kinds of systems and services. It's really also really refreshing to talk about how we can improve the NHS with someone who sees the benefits and also the inevitable flaws of any system. I mean, having that conversation in good faith about what could be improved is so interesting when you know that the ideas are coming from someone who, who does know what they're talking about and who does believe in it, as well as those healthy ideas about ways to do things differently. That's one example of the silver linings of all the disruptions of 2020, isn't it? Digital appointments are great. And now that change has been sort of forced, everyone's taking them up, which will hopefully free up some much needed resources for those who need those appointments in person. I also thought that Ellen was great at explaining some of the technical terms too. Uh, primary care networks might sound a bit abstract, but Ellen explained how that is potentially a recipe for bringing works, different types of healthcare, social care hope it's and council properly, services closer together. Yeah, very much agree on funding. I thought Ellen was very insightful on the political implications as well. It was great we were able to talk about the various differences of opinion about what to do next, such as those more herd immunity type approaches, but without diverging from the facts and the genuine experts too much. Ellen put it really well, didn't she, when she talked about bias and optimism. We can hope for the best, but maybe we should still plan for the worst. Great note to end on, Dale. I think it's optimistic. We should always be hoping for a better future and let's hope we can look to a brighter future in 2021. But need to remember that hoping on its own isn't enough. We do need those people like Ellen too. Absolutely. So thank you to Ellen Nicholson and everyone else in our National Health Service, plus those working tirelessly in social services and mental health charities for everything they're still doing as we push on towards the end of 2020. Bring on the end of 2020. Tune in next time for more insights from Woking's Lockdown Frontline. Until next time.